Masechet Ketubot, Taf Ayin Aleph. We're continuing to analyze this Mishnah that uh, talks about someone who prohibits any benefit from his wife. If it's up to 30 days, then he can remain married and, uh, and get a third-party trustee to feed her in the meantime. But more than that is unsustainable. Then we see the Biuda who disagrees. The, we're going to question, he seems to actually agree regarding a Yisrael, because he just says a Chodesh for one month, that's fine. That one month sounds the same as 30 days. Uh, but for two months, then he has to give it, give it to Ketubah. The Biuda adds that regarding a Kohen, we give him a little bit more leeway. And even if he vows that he will not give anything to his wife for two months, if he's a Kohen, they can remain married because then otherwise he won't be able to remarry her. So we have for a Kohen, we give him more time. But if he says it for three months, that is totally unsustainable, even for a Kohen, and he has to give a, a divorce her and give her a ketubah. Oh, now we're going to ask, what's the difference between Tanakama and Rebi Yehuda? Uh, 30 days and um, uh, one month sound like they're the same thing. So Rebi Yehuda Omer B'Yisrael Chodesh Echad V'cholahainu Tanakama, is that the same as the first opinion? Two answers, Amar Abaye, Kohenet Atala Shmo'inan. Yes, in fact, it is the same, uh, but Rebi Yehuda simply wants to come and add the law about a Kohen. So it sounds like Tanakama would say, no matter who, Yisrael or Kohen, they get one month. More than one month, is it's, he's, he's going against his ketubah responsibilities. He has to feed her. He's not feeding her. Whereas the Biuda agrees with Yisrael, but disagrees with her regarding a Kohen. Rava says, no, it's actually just a one-day difference. Since Tanakama said 30 days, and that's in a, a complete 30 days, uh, even though a month, a month sometimes is, is 29 days and sometimes is 30 days. So in a month that is chased, it's only 29 days, according to Rabbi Yehuda, he uh, would be able to remain married with, to her for that 29 days, but the 30th day would not be sufficient, uh, would not be good. He would have to divorce her, whereas, according to Tanakama, he can feed her through a third party for 30 days, not just for 29. We only learned this 30-day time frame that he can go and point a trustee when he specifies the amount of time. When he actually says, uh, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm angry at you. I'm not going to have, uh, allow you to have any benefit for two weeks or three weeks. If he says the amount of time, then he can wait that long or up to a month. He can wait that long and use a trustee, and then uh, and, uh, um, uh, so then that's fine. But if he gives no upper limit, he just says, you are prohibited to get any benefit from me forever. Well, in that case, immediately he has to give, he has to give her a get, and pay the ketubah immediately. In other words, he doesn't even have, since he didn't give an, a limit, an upper limit, so he doesn't get the 30-day leeway that he can use a trustee, uh, and uh, he has to give the get right away. Shemuel says, even if he says more than 30 days, um, he says uh, un, uh, unlimited, uh, I'm, I'm never going to let you have any benefit from me. Still, he can wait to give her the get and pay the ketubah for 30 days and feed her through a third party. Why? Because maybe he'll be able to undo his vow. He'll go to sages and he'll say, I didn't realize the consequences of my vow. I would not have made it. 
And so we give him a chance to undo his vow during those 30 days. Okay, so that's Machlobi to Navin Shemuel. We're familiar with this. We already heard that Avin Shemuel argued with each other in a similar case. Someone makes a vow, unlike, unlike the one in our case where he makes making a vow that he she cannot benefit from his property. Here he says, I vow that uh, we will not have, I will not have relations with you. Uh, so if he does that, that's also against his uh, commitment to Ona, against the Ketubah. So how long can he sustain that for? Bet Shemai says, up to two weeks, he would not have to divorce her. Bet Hillel says, only up to a week. He's responds, he has to be with his wife at least once a week, and therefore a week or more, he has to divorce her and pay the ketubah. Now, regarding that machloket of Tanaim, we have a parallel. Amarav machloket bim faresh. Avabistam yosil al-talvi v'yiten ketubah. Serav says that this argument between Betil and Betshamay only applies when he does say exactly how long. If he says one week, uh, then he can wait for that long and remain married. But if he says it without an upper limit, he just says, I'm, I'm, I'm prohibiting myself to you uh, for relations. Then he has to divorce her immediately and give her ketubah immediately. He doesn't even have the one week, even though actually he's not responsible to, um, to perform ona more than once a week. Uh, nevertheless, because he made a vow, and so he, it's, he would be, it's impossible for him to do so. So this already breaks his, uh, his ketubah responsibility. And he has to give right away. That's Rav. Shemuel says, even if he says, without an upper limit, um, prohibited to have marital relations to you, and a, uh, nevertheless, he can wait a week before he actually has to give her the get and pay her, because in the meantime, maybe he'll calm down from his anger, and he'll go and undo his vow. All right, so Rav and Shemuel have machloket, the same machloket in two different cases. Historically, it could be that Rav and Shemuel said it in one case, and then and then uh, someone applied it to the other case because they're parallel. But uh, it, it, whether that's true or not, right now we have it as a, a tradition that applies it to both cases. So we ask, why do we need to record it for both cases? Siricha. If I only had the case of marital relations, we makes a vow against that. I would say there, Rav says he has to divorce her immediately because it's impossible for him to fulfill it through a third party. You can't get a messenger to have relations with his wife. Uh, there's some kind of joke about that, but I don't remember it. Aval Beha, but in the case of this, um, uh, when he says no benefit to you, uh, then if Shabbat he can sustain the marriage and his responsibilities through a third party. That will give her her sandwich. Uh, so, so maybe Rav would agree with Shemuel that he can wait the 30 days even when he gives no limit. So that's why I need the case of here of deriving benefit. And if I only had this case regarding the vow to derive benefit, maybe here Shemuel says that he can wait the 30 days because he can continue to sustain her through a third party. But in the case of he when he vows against marital relations, where he can't do it through a third party, maybe he maybe even Shemuel would agree to, with Rav 
that he has to divorce her right away. Sadiqa, that's why I need that case also to teach me that Rav would disagree, even in the case of relations, and say he can wait the week uh, before he gives her a get. Okay, now we're going to con- quote the continuation of the Mishnah. Right, right here, this was the, the next uh, case. Uh, and uh, here, there's no time limit, right? Uh, here, it, it just says immediately he has to give a ketubah. It doesn't give him, it doesn't give us 30 days. So let's see. Uh, what the reason is. So, we can explain that according to Rav, this case uh, regarding the fruit is where he gave no upper limit, and that's why he has to divorce her right away. Whereas the first case where he says, no benefit from any of my property, that's when he did give a, a limit. He said 30 days, and that's why he can wait. Okay, so we can understand that. That when a person, even when a person gives no upper limit, he still has 30 days to give a get. So how come in the case of the fruit, he has to give a get immediately? And the answer is, according to Shemuel, we're going to limit the case of our Mishnah. It's not where he made a vow. See, Shemuel's role, only reasoning is, we'll give him 30 days because since he made the vow and he was angry, maybe he'll change his mind, calm down, and he'll, he'll go and uh, to the rabbis and, and undo the vow. But we're talking about here, not where he made the vow, but where she made a vow and says, I'm not going to eat grapes. And he didn't say anything. He let the vow be fulfilled. He could have canceled it, and he didn't. And we're further going to follow the opinion of Bimeir, who says that when she vows, but he allows the vow to be, then he is responsible. Similar, the analogy is, if she's biting down on some food or something, and he puts his finger into her mouth, and then his finger gets bitten, who's responsible? Is she responsible just for taking a bite? No, he's responsible for putting his finger in her mouth. Same thing here, even though she made the vow, he is the one that let it happen. And so he is responsible. Now, since she made the, she made the vow, I guess, because she was angry. Um, but he said, yeah, fine, he, while he wasn't angry. So uh, it sounds like she wants out, and she's not going to change her mind and undo the vow. And therefore, there's no point here in waiting the 30 days for her to undo the vow. And he also seems to want the vow to to happen, and he doesn't want to be in the marriage either. And so, in this case, there's no point in waiting 30 days. And even Shemuel would say, you may as well just, uh, uh, may as well just, you have to give the divorce immediately. So that's, that's what Shemuel is saying. This case here in the, end of the Mishnah is where she is the one that makes the vow. This answer is now going to lead into a tangent about who is responsible when she makes a vow and he does not nullify it. Is she the one responsible um, or he is, as we just said, he puts his finger uh, between her mouth and therefore since he's responsible to for uh, making this vow that is an unsustainable vow, therefore he has to divorce her and he has to pay the ketuvah. Okay, so we said this is the opinion of Bimeir. The reason why we picked the Bimeir is because we assume that a Stam Mishnah, an anonymous Mishnah, which our Mishnah is, uh, follows the opinion of Rabbi Meir. Tanakama is Rabbi Meir. 
And therefore, since we're following this opinion of Rabbi Meir that says he is responsible, that's why we're talking about a case where she's the one that vowed. Um, but uh, and so since she vowed, it's not likely she is going to undo the vow because she made it in the first place and she wants out and that's what Shimon's talking about. All right, but now on this assumption that Abimei thinks that he is responsible for not nullifying the vow, let's discuss. Does Abimei think that he's the one responsible? A woman vows that she's going to be a Nazir. The husband is there and hears it, and he does not nullify the vow. So now she's going to be a Nazira. So Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Uda think that she put her finger in her mouth, meaning she bit on her own finger. She is responsible for this vow, even though he didn't nullify it, but she's the one that made the vow. And therefore, if the husband hears it and he wants to nullify it, he could nullify it. We're talking about a case where he didn't, but you know, if he wanted to, he could have. Or, if he wants, he could not nullify it and say, this is grounds for divorce. I don't want to marry a woman who makes vows and goes takes upon herself this uh, imposition and now we can't go to the cemetery together like we like to do. We, we can't go drinking wine together. And so this is grounds for, he could say, this is grounds to, for divorce. She is at fault for ruining the marriage by taking this vow, even though he could have undone it. It's not his responsibility. So he can divorce her without a ketubah. So we see here the Bimeir is the one that says it's her fault, uh, not his, as it says over here. So we have a contradiction. Uh, we continue the Braita. It's two other Tanaim, Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Elazar. They're the ones that think that he is responsible. Since he is the one responsible for not nullifying it, if he had wanted to, he could have nullified it. And if he doesn't nullify it, and he says, I don't want to be married to a woman who makes this kinds of these kinds of vows and makes herself a Nazir, he, he could do that, but he has to pay a ketubah because it's, he's responsible. He didn't nullify it, so he allowed it to go through. It's like he made, uh, it's, it's the same as if he would make a vow that would be prob- make the marriage problematic. Um, so he, he has to pay, he has to, he can divorce her, but he has to pay the ketubah. So that's the question. Rabbi Meir uh, does not think that it's his responsibility here. Uh, so you know what? Let's switch around the opinions of the Braita. We know it's two and two, but let's say Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yudah, the ones that say, he is responsible, and Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Al-Zab will say she is responsible. And so now Rabbi Meir of our Mishnah, who's the Stam, uh, anonymous opinion, say he is responsible, and here also in the Braita, he is responsible. Okay, but now that you switch them and puts Rabbi Yosef on the side of her being responsible, but this is going to contradict another, another uh, our Mishnah. Rabbi Yosef Let's look at the last case of our Mishnah. It's when someone vows that his wife should not uh, put on cosmetics or perfume uh, or a certain type of a certain type of perfume. So he divorces her and he has to give her a ketubah. Rabbi Yosef, however, says it depends. If it's a poor person and he gave no upper limit, then he divorces her and gave, and gives a ketubah. Um, but if he gave some limit, we'll see in a few minutes 
what that limit is. Um, if he just said, you know, a couple of weeks, then that's fine because poor women don't always put on the perfume. Uh, whereas for rich people, it's 30 days. Okay, so according to the B. Yosef, who says that there is an upper limit and otherwise it's his fault. Um, so we're continuing to assume the answer of Shemuel that she's the one that made a vow and yet he is responsible to pay the ketubah. Rabbi Yosef is only uh, uh, making a statement about the time limit, but he agrees that he, even though she made the vow, he is responsible. He didn't nullify it, so he's responsible and he has to pay a ketubah. So back to here, how could you say that Rabbi Yosef is the one that says that she is responsible for making the vow when he, uh, in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yosef says he's responsible and that's why he has to pay the ketubah. So, all right, let's switch the names again. Uh, okay, so it's still two and two, but we're, instead of flipping them, we're going to just move one to one side and the other to the other side. Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef are the ones that say he's responsible. He put his finger in her mouth. And so the other two sages here say it's her responsibility. Hold on. It's still not working. Do you think Rabbi Yudah says it's her responsibility? No one wants to be on that side of assigning responsibility to the woman for making her own vow. Uh, and so Rabbi Yudah says, look, it's his. Oh, once again, in our Mishnah, in the previous case, Rabbi Uda, in the in the case where he says you cannot eat a certain fruit, it's actually she says, I'm not going to eat grapes, and he does not nullify it. And Rabbi Uda agrees with it. He just makes a distinction between Israel one day and a Kohen two days. Uh, but uh, he agrees that even though she made the vow, again, we're following the that she's the one that made the vow throughout the Mishnah. Uh, even though she made the vow, he is responsible and gives a ketuvah. So Rabbi Yehuda also cannot be on that side. Fine, we'll move him over to Emma, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosei Hunoten. All these three sages say he's responsible because he did nullify it. Rabbi Elazar Omer Rabbi Elazar is alone uh, saying that she made the vow, so she is responsible and wouldn't get a, wouldn't get a ketubah. Now that answer you could accept, but if you don't like it because you want there to be pairs. Like we understand sometimes when something is passed along orally, uh, a name names could get switched around. That happens. But it's very unlikely that you'll rem not remember that there's two on one side and two on the other side and m make it three and one uh, if um, and uh, if it was three and one, make it two and two. So therefore, we want it to still, still be balanced and have two and two. So you know what? Take the Bimeir. We were assuming the whole time that Bimeir is the author of Amishnah, and that's why we put him to the side that says he's responsible. But maybe not. Maybe the Bimeir are the ones that say she's responsible. For sure, the Biudan they are named in our Mishnah explicitly and saying that he gives a Kitubah. So therefore, they have to say that he's responsible. And this anonymous opinion in our Mishnah, the Tanakama, is not the Bimeir. Even though we have a rule that says Stam Mishnah Meir, that's a general rule. Many Mishnayot, maybe even most Mishnayot are to be Meir, but actually it's not a 100% rule. Not all Mishnayot are to be Meir, and so this one is not.
All right, good. Now back to the Biyose. The Sabbat of the Biyose ba'aniyot shelonatan kisba alma ba'alma se mefer. The Biyose said that for a poor woman who say, and he does if he if she makes a vow, I'm not going to put on adornments. Then uh, and without any upper limit, and he does not undo it then uh, he has to give a divorce. So that would mean that the husband could have nullified the vow if he had wanted. Now, we're going to see a general rule. We were thinking until now that a husband can nullify any uh, vow that his wife makes, but actually that's not true. He can only nullify a vow that will affect the marriage in some way. So um, we see here that according to the Biyose, her not putting on perfume or jewelry is a thing that he could have and therefore should have nullified if he wanted to stay married. So that's why it's his fault if he doesn't. Now we're going to show a contradiction of in the Biyose's opinion regarding this. Tanakama says, The following things that a husband can undo where his wife's vow regarding uh, anything that has to do with suffering of one's of oneself. If she makes herself suffer, that affects him too, right? I don't want to be married to someone who is making herself suffer in this way. She says, She makes a vow that she's not going to bathe anymore. She can make the vow in one of two opposite uses of language. She says, you know, I will... Uh, not re- derive any benefit from washing if I should wash. So that means basically she can't wash because she can't derive any. For- or if she makes a vow that says, I will not, I will not wash. Um, either way, she's not going to be able to wash. Or imet kashet, imloet kashet. Or she says, um, uh, I will not derive any benefit from uh, perfume. Or she says, I will not wear perfume. These, according to Tanakama, are things that make her suffer that will affect him too. He doesn't want to be married to someone who doesn't bathe. And so he is allowed to undo the, those vows. But Abiyose disagreed and said, This is not called suffering of the body. Rather, the following are, all, are the ones that things that are called personal suffering. If she says, I will not eat meat, I will not drink wine, I'm not going to wear colorful, nice clothing, but only drab, old clothing. In these cases, and these cases, uh, uh, to exclude the first case, as Abiyose says, she, he, the husband, can nullify the vow. Uh, even though actually meat and wine seem like more luxuries than never washing, uh, but nevertheless, the point is that this has to do with the, 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 her body itself, what she's eating, it affects him because he wants to eat with her. He wants to be able to see her in nice clothing. Whereas, according to the Beyonce, the washing or wearing perfume is less, um, less suffering um, in a way that will affect the marriage. All right. So the Biyose disagrees with these items. Okay. The point here is that the, um, the Biyose uh, 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 yeah, Rabbi Yosei in the Mishnah said that was talking about a case where she says that she's not she is not going to wear perfume, and the husband could have 
uh, nullified the vow. And if he doesn't nullify the vow, it's his fault. But according to this Baraita, Rabbi Yosef thinks that the husband does not have the right to nullify a vow regarding her adornments. It's not like meat and wine. This is something that is not considered uh, an aspect of her suffering that affects the marriage. So this is a contradiction. Our answer is, Our Mishnah is not talking about all kinds of adornments and perfume and all that, but rather a specific type of adornment, something that has to do with their intimate relations. It doesn't say it explicitly. It's talking about her removing her hair from her privates. That is something that will affect their private life, and so that's why he does have a right to undo the vow. Okay, fine, that will, this answer will suffice according to the opinion that says this item but that's uh, intimate between the, the husband and wife regarding her ha- removal of her hair, uh, a husband affects him and therefore he can undo the vow. But there is another opinion that says that a husband cannot undo the vow regarding her hair. Here's the source, the Machloket Amoraim, regarding these, uh, regarding her hair. Ravuna says the husband can undo the vow. However, Ravada says he cannot undo the vow. Why? Because he doesn't think that this is such an important matter. Shalom asinu shu'al shemet ba'afar pir. He gives an analogy. We never find a fox that dies in a foxhole from the dirt in the foxhole. Right? There's dirt in the foxhole. The fox lives there. Lives there. He's okay with it. The analogy is uh, we never find um, found a man that died because uh, his wife has some hair uh, in her privates. So whether it's comfortable or preferable or not, it's really not so important. And he does not, it's not doesn't rise to the level of suffering that he can undo a vow. Uh, so we need another answer for that. In that case, when Amishna is talking about a case, not just that she said, "I'm not going to put on perfume," um, in which case, according to the Bioce, that's not grounds for him nullifying the vow, but rather in a case where she connects the not putting on perfume with uh, with marital relations. She says, if I put on perfume, then I'm not going to have marital relations. And so then, she's not going to put on perfume, and now this does affect them. She said, um, relations with you is forbidden to me if I wear perfume. And this follows the opinion of Rav Kahana. Kofa um Ravkana made a distinction between her exact language. Um, if she said, the pleasure of relations with me is forbidden to you, uh, so then he can you know, force her, uh, not physically force her, but legally, financially, to have relations with him, uh, because she only said that the pleasure of my, uh, uh, the pleasure that you will have is forbidden to you. Or more precisely, she says, the pleasure of my having relations with you is prohibited to you. So that is not valid, that vow, because she is not allowed to make a vow against her marital obligations. And so this is a basic marital obligation, so the vow is null and void. 
and therefore he doesn't have to divorce her, uh, but rather they can continue to have relations. But if he, if she says, "Hanat alai," that pleasure of relations with you is forbidden to me, yafed. That vow, that vow would be valid because she is just making a personal vow that she will not have any pleasure from that those relations and she has a right over her own body that does not directly contradict her obligation for him to have relations just because she says i'm not gonna have uh, have any benefit from those relations so there uh, it would be valid and since it would be valid he should undo it because after all, you're not allowed to feed someone food that is uh, that is not kosher for him, right? You can't. You're not just like you can't eat a pig. You can't feed feed someone pig. If someone just ate meat. You can't feed them dairy. And the same thing here. Even though she made a vow regarding herself that she will not have any benefit from relations, but that would still. Uh, make him uh, give a problem to him because he would still not be able to have relations with her because then by his action would cause her to violate her vow. So the vow is is a valid one, but it would still prohibit him um, indirectly. So he should uh, undo it. Okay, so that's uh, that's the case that we're talking about, where she does make a vow connecting the uh, wearing of perfume to the relations, and she says the statement about relations in such a way that it would be valid. In that case, he, if he does not nullify it, then she, then he is responsible, and he has to pay the ketubah. Now we ask even about even with that uh, conditional statement it still doesn't mean that she will definitely be prohibited it only says if i put on perfume then you then i will be prohibited from having relation from having benefit of relations with you but she may not put on uh, perfume so if she doesn't put on perfume then she can continue having relations so actually her statement um is is does not go does not ruin the marriage and so therefore he does not have to undo it no, imken kadula minuvelet. No, if she if she never puts on deodorant, then people are going to call her repulsive. They're going to call her smelly, and she's going to be embarrassed. So it's impossible to never put on deodorant. So she's going to end up putting on deodorant at some point, and then she will be prohibited. So in fact, this is a vow that ruins the marriage. Still, it's his fault for not un- undoing it, and that's why he would have to pay the ketubah. Hold on. Well, so fine. Let her put on deodorant, and she'll be prohibited. And then we'll apply the law that we already know from the other Mishnah. According to Bet Shammai, they can go on for two weeks, and according to Bet Hillel, for one week. And so they wouldn't have to get divorced right away. They would be able to wait. And if it's only for a week, then they can remain married. No, that they only said their opinions when he's the one that made the vow and he said, I'm not going to have relations with you, then they can remain married if it's less than a week for Betilel. Since he's the one that made the vow, she thinks to herself, oh, he's very angry at me. That's why he made the vow. 
but he'll calm down after a couple of days, and then he'll go and undo the vow. That's why they can remain married. But here in this case, she's the one that made the vow in anger, but she may calm down. But the more, uh, the more important thing is that he was quiet. He didn't say, no, don't say that. Don't make the vow. Right? Don't be angry with me. He was like, fine. I'm, he, he's happy to not have any relations with her. He's happy to that she doesn't put on the order and he's happy to, to divorce her. So if he, when he was not angry, allowed her to make such a vow and was silent, then she assumes that must be he despises her. And that's why she uh, assumes that they are going to get divorced and there's no hope for this marriage. And that's why he has to pay, uh, he has to give a divorce and pay immediately. All right, we're now ready to analyze Rabbi Yosef further. Rabbi Yosef Omer Ba'aniyot Shelo Natan Chisba. If uh, there is a vow between the husband and wife, she made it, that she's not going to wear perfume, but he does not undo it, uh, then this is a problem. Uh, Rabbi Yosef, however, makes a distinction uh, between rich and poor. Uh, if, a rich, uh, if a rich person is 30 days, they can last without that way. A poor person, even longer, but there has to be some limit. So, now we say, what is that some limit beyond which one would have to divorce and give a kitubah for per person also? It can't be 100 years because that's the same as forever. So, what's the upper limit? says one year, 12 months. He says 10 years, so much longer. I guess, according to him, the poor women do not uh, wear perfume uh, very often, but still, uh, 10 years has to be some limit. And so, the Rav name of Abimi says, each holiday, from now till the next holiday, that uh, Jewish women, even those that are, are, are poor, are going to wear something special on the holiday. And so if he says, if he does not nullify a vow, and so she cannot do that, that is a serious imposition. All right. For rich people, 30 days. Why 30 days? I assume if they're rich, then they would probably would want to smell good all the time, wouldn't they? Because important women, wealthy women, they would still continue to enjoy this smell of their perfume for 30 days. They had some kind of, uh, I guess, very strong perfume uh, that they would smear, maybe some kind of oil they put on their bodies, and it would remain effective for 30 days. Remember, they did not wash all that often, even rich people. All right, and now we begin the next Mishnah. Hamadir et ishto shelo telech lebet abiha. Okay, another thing, besides the technical things that a man has to do for his wife, he also cannot restrict uh, his wife's movement too much. So a man makes a vow that his wife cannot go visit her parents. Um, he wants to. He wants her to be home with him, and she doesn't want him. She doesn't want her going and being connected still with her parents. So how long can he do that for? Right, for a day or two. That's fine. How was the maximum? Well, it depends. If her parents are live in live in the same city as they do, then if he says, "I don't want you going to your parents for one month," 
right? If she's going every night, she's going to her parents, like she's not, she's not committed to the marriage. She still keeps going home. So he can say, no, I want you to stay home and not go to your parents for one month. That's fine. But if he says two months, that's too much. She has a right to visit her parents. But if her parents live in a different city, then they don't visit that often. When do you visit? On holidays. So if he says, listen, for the upcoming holiday, I don't want you to go to your parents. That's okay. He has a right to say, I want to spend Pesach together here, and I don't want you going home. But if it's three holidays, all three regalim, then that's not fair. She, she has a right to go visit her parents on some holiday, and then he has to give a ketubah. What's missing here is two. It goes from one is not allowed, one is permitted, three is not allowed. What about two? The Gemara will ask. Next case, a man makes a vow forbidding his wife from going to a house of mourning or to a party for, or for a wedding. He doesn't want her going out, uh, socializing. That is not fair to her and uh, limiting her movement too much. He has grounds for divorce and it's his, for his fault for making that vow. He has to pay a ketuvah. He's like locking the door on her. She's not in jail. Uh, she's married, but she, she can go out and see friends and, and, make, pee, and uh, make mourners happy and enjoy weddings. Okay. However, if his reason is because of something else, something else meaning some promiscuity, he thinks that if she goes to a wedding, it's going to lead to mixed dancing, uh, she's going to uh, flirt with people at the, at the morning house, then he's permitted to protect her, to protect the marriage. He can. But if it's just to, um, just to keep her home, like in jail, it's not allowed. He makes a vow that you'll be prohibited if, unless you t- tell this person what um, uh, what you told what you told me or what I told you. In other words, he wants her to go be a tattletale, right? And makes a vow. And uh, the the vow will be something that uh, that is uh, will ruin the marriage unless she repeats something that she said to him or that he said to her. So this is not fair. He can't force her to go and be uh, uh, and and repeat uh, uh, re- repeat. Um, all, you know, uh, rumors. Okay. Or if he makes a vow that will force her to fill up a, a pail and throw it into the garbage. Fill up a pail with dirt and then throw it out. Fill it up and throw it out. In other words, just do manual labor for no reason. It doesn't help anyone in the house. It's not a, it's not a chore. Uh, just to make her work needlessly. That is also very unfair, not very nice thing to do. And he by, thereby ruins the marriage, but it's his fault. So he has to give her a divorce and he has to pay the ketubah. Okay, we ask, on the first case, how come I mentioned that one holiday he is permitted to make a vow to keep her home from her parents, but three is not allowed. So if one is allowed, then that implication is that two, he, he is ruining the marriage. He has to give a ketubah. Look at the end. Three, three is too many. But that means two holidays. He uh, is, is okay. And he can 
that's a valid vow and he doesn't have to divorce her. So what's the deal? Oh, that the case of two, with the, where the implication from the number three is that he it's okay uh, to have two. That's talking about a, when um, she's married to a Kohen. If she's married to Israel, then one is permitted. Two is already in imposition, and he has to divorce her. But if she's if if it's a if he's a kohen, and then we don't want them to get divorced so quickly because he won't be able to take her back. In that case, he can even prohibit her from two holidays, but not three. And that would follow the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, who in the previous Mishnah allowed a longer runway for kohanim. Or another answer, it depends one. One's talking about some, a woman who is a runner, Ridufa. She is always running back to her parents' house. She is eager, enthusiastic to see her parents all the time. And in that case, if you tell her that she can't go home for two holidays, that's going to be very much an imposition and grounds for divorce because she likes going home. So in that case, she can do one, but not two. But if she's enaide dufa, if she's not so eager to go home, she likes to see her parents, but she doesn't need to see them uh, all the time. In that case, he can forbid her to visit her parents for two holidays, but still not for three, because even a woman who's, uh, who's not uh, running home all the time still wants to be able to see her parents who are live out of town at least for one of the three holidays. All right, now that we mentioned um, uh, that when a bride uh, feels at home versus when she keeps wanting to go back to her parents' house, we uh, quote a derasha that compares the relationship between B'nai Israel and Hashem like a wife and a, and a groom. Uh, as says, then I was in his eyes like one that found peace. So what do you mean? What's then and what's what's uh, what's found peace regarding says Israel are like a bride who finds peace in her in-law's house. In other words, in her husband's house, uh, or usually the wife would move to where the husband lives, probably in some kind of compound where he and his parents and his siblings all live together. Uh, so when, when the marriage works well, she comes and she feels at home in her in-law's house. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And she only runs home, not because she needs, she doesn't feel comfortable at her uh, husband's house, but she likes to run home to brag about how much praise she is receiving from her husband and her husband's family. So she runs home to say, oh, marriage is wonderful. I just want to let you know um, how well they're treating me. And then she goes back to where she feels comfortable at home in her husband's house. So that's the, uh, that's the ideal that uh, she should feel so comfortable. And so B'nai Israel feel that way as well. Pasuk in Hoshea that says, In that day, at the end of days, when everything, when Benesil come back to the land of Israel and our relationship is top notch, then um, Bene Israel will call Hashem uh, Ishi, their husband. 
then you will no longer call me, Hashem says, Baali, my master. Uh, both of these, Ish and Baal, are words that mean husband, but they have very different connotations. A Baal means someone that's an owner. Uh, a slave will call his master Baal. And so that's a model of uh, marriage that the husband owns the wife and kind of forces her to be there, and she'd rather not be there. Um, so that is what it was like in the past when the relationship between B'nai Sel and Hashem were not so good and people B'nai Sel were just doing were, were just serving Hashem out of fear like a slave and a, and a master that's a low level but Hoshea is saying in the future one day not our relationship will no longer be one that you call me a Baal but rather Ishi my husband a more intimate personal relationship based on love compares it once again to a bride in her in-law's house where she feels welcome and comfortable and she wants to be there and not like a bride who still stays in her father's house that they're technically married but she keeps going home because she doesn't like to be with her husband and their family. Uh, so you see the ideal is what we say in the, what it says in Bereshit, and there it's not only the wife but the husband also who leaves his father and mother and creates a new unit together with his spouse and we see here that is the ideal of marriage that the husband and wife do not stay uh, remain uh, do not remain uh, primarily connected with their parents but rather uh, leave them to create a new unit a new nuclear family Amen